Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Police reform, police training, foot pursuit policy, how to comply, and lack of parenthood. It's been a year since the death of George Floyd, and a lot has changed and a lot hasn't. Dr. Anthony Bradley from King's College presents effective solutions on how we can promote human flourishing in black communities. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Act in Line on our website at actin.org slash actinline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Dr. Anthony Bradley. He's Professor of Religious Studies and Director of the Center for the Study of Human Flourishing at the King's College, theologian in residence at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Lincoln Square, and serves as a research fellow at the Acton Institute. Dr. Bradley lectures at colleges, universities, business organizations, conferences, and churches throughout the U.S. and abroad. His writings on religious and cultural issues have been published in a variety of journals, including the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Washington Examiner, Al Jazeera, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Detroit News, Christianity Today, and World Magazine. His latest book, Why Black Lives Matter, was published in October 2020. Dr. Bradley recently hosted an Acton Lecture Series event for us on this book, which we will include a link to in the show notes. Anthony Bradley, welcome back to Acton Line. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here again. So last time we talked to you on this podcast was an episode released on June 3rd of last year, and it was the most downloaded episode that we had of the podcast last year, um, which is something that we're proud of and is also somewhat tragic considering the subject matter that we were discussing because it was in the wake of the death of George Floyd and the protests that grew out of that incident. Um, We're short of a year later from the last time we talked to you about this. And I'm curious, now that we have, in that intervening time, we've had a trial and a verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer, uh, now found guilty of murder and the death of George Floyd. We've had other police incidents, some quite recently that I think we'll get to in a little bit. But I'm curious your thoughts on uh, that incident and what happened in the 11 months since the last time we talked. What do you think has developed? What has changed for the better, for the worse in that time? Wow, that's a fantastic question. I I really can't believe it's been almost a year uh, since we had what I would say is a a paradigm-shifting a conversation about about race and and policing in urban areas. I think, you know, we, we've seen that the rule of law works, right? Um, that when people violate the rule of law, when the rule of law is able to be applied uh, in, in the way that it was intended, uh, even police officers, right, are not above the law. And so when we allow the law to do its job, I think that in cases where the evidence is really clear, the law is going to execute verdicts, and and that's that's been a, a great thing. I think I think what we're also seeing, and and maybe this is in part some aspects of the the media's undoing, is that is is that we're we're getting a skewed perspective 
that that you know on on the one hand we have a sort of massive problem with with policing and African Americans in particular that is that 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 there is this sort of massive problem of of police killing black black people particularly black men and I think I think that that narrative is a bit exaggerated and I think it's part because the media local media local news only tells the stories right to get ratings and to get clicks. And so we, they highlight those stories, but it, it just obscures all of the other people who, who tragically die at the hands of police. And I think, I think the sort of over reading that narrative has, has really got us thinking probably about the country. But then, but then secondly, again, we're, we're confronted with the challenges of policing in particular, uh, some of the ways that, that policing reform has has been facilitated because of this, and and I think and you know we have to be honest to say that that policing is a hard job. I have I have friends who were who were cops, and in those moments where it's really tense, it's you know instincts and training uh, uh, kick in. I, I don't I don't believe all cops are bad cops, but there's certainly space and room for improvement. And I, w- I would lastly say, I think there's also space and room for us thinking about whether or not we may be over-policing uh, certain communities. And, and, and by that, I mean uh, also using the police to do things that police aren't trained to do. The protests that emerged in the wake of the death of George Floyd and that continued in various ways throughout the last uh, 11 months or so, do you think that there has been anything fruitful that has come of that? Um, you had, when we discussed this on the last episode you were on, that there was rioting also associated with those protests. Um, if we're looking at them as being hopefully a vehicle for some kind of reform, do you think there has been any fruitful movement on reform as a result of those protests? There have been some some great opportunities to have discussions locally. I've, I've been really impressed by the ways in which local counties and local cities have been taking a hard look at their own histories over the last year or so because of the protests. And there has been there has been this increasing awareness that maybe in our town uh, we had some history that we need to talk about and maybe we need to act on that history and, and that has been, I think, a, a, really, a really positive outcome is that more and more local communities and local institutions are, are looking at their history and asking really good questions. Um, you know, were we, a, were we part, a participant in some of the problems? What, what, what are some of the ways in which we, make, we may contribute to things being better? Are there things that we need to address and, and discuss within our own neighborhood and that that's been the most encouraging thing to me. I think I think the, the idea that we have to sort of nationalize all of the problems and solutions is, is in some ways unhelpful. And the ways in which people have been owning and focusing in on their local histories has been has been really, really encouraging. I, I'm curious to unpack a little more of that, that the uh, as I look at the protest movement, um, what I see is a lot of, and I find this actually to be a commonality now with a lot of protest movements, even if you go back to the early days, uh, post 9-11 and around the time of the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, you would have protests of that and set aside what people may think of the uh, 
of the Iraq war. But you would protest against the war and you would also see people out there protesting against nuclear energy and a whole bunch of different things all kind of shoved together under one big umbrella there that made it difficult, I think, for people to have a clear sense of what this is truly about. And I think we did see a lot of that in the wake of the death of George Floyd as well. Um, maybe a little bit more focused. I know we discussed on the, the last episode that you were on that you had a, you know, anti-capitalist rhetoric being included within that too. But what we also saw over the course of the last year was the emergence of the idea of defunding the police being what a lot of people focused on as a proposed solution. Um, Do you think that those complications um, or those various other ideas that got grouped together under one big umbrella um, were a hindrance to reform? And what did you think of the defund the police being kind of the big sticky ID that came out of that protest movement? Yeah, those are those are great, great questions. One, one, one of the challenges that I think that, that we face in terms of identifying, you know, what the problem is, is that we want really simple analysis about what that is. And I, I think the reality is, is it's more complicated than that. And one of the one of the tragedies, I think, of, of some of the protests and some of our conversations since the death of George Floyd is, is and I've talked about this all the time, is the over-application of race as the variable that explains every single negative externality in the black community. Right? Uh, race, you know, used to explain every single disparity between whites and blacks and Asians. Race being, being used as a sort of a central way to explain uh, uh, anything and everything that, that might be uh, that might be a problem, and so over over realizing race, right, and sort of overuse of race as as a way of explaining the why actually obscures some of the other variables that are that are really contributing to many black communities not thriving, and and so we're not talking about some of those other things, right? We're not talking about marriage and family. We're not talking about uh, job creation. We're not, we're not talking about, you know, some of those uh, uh, variables like entering into the marketplace. Um, we're, not, we're not talking about some of those, those, those other things. And so using race that way, I think, really does uh, obscure the other issues that could bring great solutions. And, and when it gets reduced to a slogan, right, that really tends to be more emotional, uh, than, than theoretical, right? Sort of defund the police seems like an emotion. It doesn't seem to be a rationally thought out uh, platform. And what critics will say, they'll say, listen, well, when we said defund the police, we didn't, what we really meant was redistribute the funding in the city so that it goes to healthcare and education. Well, if that's what that means, then you come up with a different slogan, like, hey, let's redistribute some of the, the tax dollars to other programs. A defund the police, to me, seems to be really specific and narrowly uh, just about the police department, right? Defund the police, in my mind, is to think, oh, defund the police. We should give more money to teachers. That's, that's, a, that's not a, a natural consequence of that. And what's interesting, and if you look at the data, is that every single major city that had these defund the police movements, crime went up, right? 
Because, it, I mean, what sort of signal does it send to, to police departments? Um, the community doesn't support you. We're not behind you. We're not on your side. And so policing, you know, police officers, because they don't want to get attacked, they don't want to get sued, it introduced some incentives for them to step back in, in a lot of cities. And, and we've seen the consequences of some police withdrawal because they don't want to be... Uh, they, they don't. They don't want to be attacked. And and what's interesting also in in the data is that is that the the, the slogan "defund the police" was sort of often promulgated by people that live in communities that don't need the police. The people that live in communities that need the police, they weren't saying defund the police. They were saying more things like reform policing, make some changes in policing. But when you have you know, you have these people who live in communities uh, where, you know, uh, where, where the price point is so high that, that crime is low. It's a bit hypocritical for, the, for them to be talking about defund the police when they don't actually need those. Uh, they, they don't need policing in, the, in their communities. But that that is something particularly. And I've, we, there's been really interesting reports that have come after that, that that largely if you survey black communities, they weren't embracing that. That was sort of exported by the sort of progressive elites. Uh, that wasn't that wasn't some some slogan that came out of sort of emerged in and out of the black communities that need policing. And so you have these progressives, right? Sort of progressive elites who introduced the slogan, and and because people didn't have a lot of other categories to reform, I think they they unwisely uh, settled on that one in ways that force people to redefine it in, in, in ways that to me just don't make any, any sense. That's a very interesting point that you'd, you'd see this in the media as well, that you, exactly what you said, that, you know, someone would pop up, the slogan defund the police would come up in conversation. And someone would say, well, like, well, by defund the police, we don't really mean defund the police. But then inevitably, there'd be another voice that would immediately pop up and say, no, we really do mean defund the police. And you can hardly fault people for being confused when they're told it doesn't mean what it says, and it means what it says. Um, your The point that you just made about what communities are seeking. Um, I'm talking to you right now from the city of Chicago, which uh, plenty of people can read about in the news and know what's going on here. What, what I've always heard with regard to um, African-American communities in the city of Chicago is yeah, the slogans such as defund the police are not popular, that it's not as so much that they want less policing, that they want better and more accountable policing, that they think police are often around for smaller crimes, particularly those associated with revenue collection through fines and fees and uh, smaller incidents. But everybody knows about the shootings and the murder problem in the city of Chicago, and they feel they're not present enough in preventing and solving those kinds of crimes. Um, do you, in your uh, study of this, have you seen, is that a common experience in, in cities around the country, or might that be more unique to the city of Chicago? No, not, not, not at all. I mean, I, I'm here in, in, in New York and, and do have a fair amount of work in Harlem. And and you're you're exactly right. I mean, if you actually talk to people on the street um, who who live in these in these very communities, they actually want policing to do what policing is is sort of pledged to do. But what they don't want is over police presence, right? 
and and it's sort of you know it's sort of like a police state in these low income neighborhoods, you know, where they often meddle in, in ways to create some revenue for for their for their cities, right? Uh, and so you know because their presence is there, it often escalates, and and these minor incidences uh, do sometimes spill over into into things that are that are major. You have you have uh, a police, for example. You know, in schools, uh, they're handling domestic uh, uh, disputes and, and uh, things like that. And and you know, we're not we're not going to we're not going to get any really good solutions, I think, uh, until until we address the disparity from what the elites say these communities need and what these communities are actually asking for. They're asking for better policing, uh, but they're but they're also asking for jobs. Right. They're also asking for better schools. Uh, they're also asking for the things that tend to keep uh, particularly juveniles from having that first contact with the police in the first place to be addressed as well. If there's no economic development in communities, if, if people aren't graduating high school. Right. I mean, those are the sorts of things they're asking for help for. And, and, and I think, again, those are the sorts of things that get obscured by these really emotional slogans like defund the police. You said a short while ago, uh, you commented on how race has become so central in the way that we look at um, policing incidents. Um, it, it is really, as I see it, become central in the way that we talk about almost everything these days. Why has it become the primary or at least the first lens or one of the first lenses through which we look at everything from crime and policing to education to business. Um, I'm thinking particularly, as you said, you're in, in New York, the what is going on right now in New York with the uh, selective enrollment high schools, where the argument is really, as I read it, couched in very explicit racial terms. Um, why has this become our default mode for analysis? That's a great question. I, I, I believe it, it, it partly just has to do with it being a trend line. If we were having this discussion, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, it, we, we'd be talking about poverty, right? I mean, poverty was a category that, that, that you know, uh, nonprofits and, and political leaders are sort of addressing poverty, poverty, poverty. And, and, you know, we're just sort of in this cycle where race is now, it's sort of like a, like a whack-a-mole game, right? You sort of address poverty, like, oh, guess what? Race is now a thing. Uh, you know, race, race is, is, a, is a way that, that for a lot of people, it's just simply easy to apply that. You know, it's, it's the hammer, right? It's sort of race is the hammer, hammer that's going to hit all the nails. Uh, and, 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 and in part, we're, we're just lazy, I think, you know, it's, it's just not it's not not willing to look at all of the variables that make contributions to both human flourishing, but all of the variables that also make contributions to the negative externalities that we see in, 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 in poverty issues, in preventing social and economic mobility, in violence, in the, the undermining of, of political and economic liberty. All of those things, right, there's sort of multiple variables but we tend to focus on one because it's just simply easy, right? It's easier and we don't have to think that deeply about all of the things that we have to do to actually bring about real solutions. Here's, here's, here's what it does. 
um, it makes the conversation nuanced and boring. And, and who wants that? Right? Who wants a really nuanced, boring conversation where, where the solution is probably somewhere in the middle? And what it does, it just feeds the narratives of sort of tribal ideology. But it actually doesn't tell us what sort of solutions to bring. And so what it does, it seduces people into thinking, well, if we just solve the race problem, then everything will be fine. And in that sense, race becomes a bit of an idol. Right? We, we believe that that if we can kind of get this one big thing out of the way, everything else will fall into place. And we could just look at human history and know that's not going to happen. But in this current environment, you know, race, race is being used as, a, as the, the hammer for all nails that, that keeps us from thinking really deeply. And it, it's really sad because, you know, if you were to ask me, is, is racism a problem in America? Well, I mean, yeah, but so is is gossip and slander and people being mean and stupid and ignorant. I mean, whenever you whenever you have a community of people, you're going to have people that that struggle with their their moral virtue and composition. And so, yes, there's all there's lots of isms. Right. But the question is, are those isms is racism something that prevents people from progress and thriving? And, and people want to argue that race is that thing. Uh, but we have to look at the data to see if that's actually true. But racist gives us a really convenient way of not doing our homework. Why do you think it is so hard for people to accept something that you hinted at there, that you know, we are fallen creatures and that the idea of um, you know, getting rid of racism as a problem is no more possible than, you know, abolishing our fallen nature. Why is that so hard for people to accept and want to believe in this um, idea, despite all evidence of this kind of perfectibility of man, that we can we can solve racism forever and there'll never be any kind of race-motivated hatred ever again? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, you, you mentioned the phrase, the perfectibility of man. I think, I think ultimately this comes down to anthropology, right? I mean, what, what do you believe constitutes not just the nature of the human person, but what motivates humans? Right? What, what actually causes humans to move towards some, some particular ought? And, and if, if you believe that, what really motivates uh, uh, you know, sort of human nature to act as something that is related to their own self-interest and selfishness, then you want to think about problems and solutions uh, with respect to that, when you believe that 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 the human person doesn't really have a nature, right? They're in some ways a, a clean slate, a tabula rasa of sorts, and it's the institutions in society that motivate human behavior. And so, if we just tweak the institutions, right? If we tweak the the external variable, then humans will naturally do what they are are made or created or constituted to do, which is usually going to be the good thing. Right, the best thing, and it's the institutions and structures. It's the things external to the human person that that sort of motivate our our our, our action. And so, if race then is one of those external variables, one of those external institutions, the belief is that if we just remove sort of race as as something that sort of pollutes the well, and people will do. Uh, people will, will, do, will do the right thing. But that's, that's an anthropological issue, right? And so, you know, 
why why is it that we have these these different visions of both injustice and justice is ultimately because we have different visions of of what constitutes and motivates the human person. You mentioned earlier that uh, people don't seem to want a boring and nuanced conversation. Um, I think you're right about that. Uh, we started talking about the George Floyd incident, um, but I, in, in preparation for this conversation, had made a note about three recent police incidents. Um, two of them happened here in Chicago, where I am right now, um, the shooting of Adam Toledo and the shooting of Anthony Alvarez. Uh, and there's a third well-publicized incident in Columbus with Kia Bryant. Um, the brief on those three incidents, Adam Toledo was being pursued on foot by a police officer. He had a gun that he had tossed, and in the process of turning around in a split second, the officer shot him. Uh, Anthony Alvarez was also fleeing on foot uh, and was shot in the course of that pursuit. And Makia Bryant is a very different case where she has a knife and looks to be in the act of stabbing someone when the officer shoots her. And yet, as I observe the coverage of these incidents, they seem to me to be flattened, that the only thing that we need to know about these incidents is that a police officer shot and killed a member of a minority community. And there's no conversation or very little conversation about the differences in those cases and what we should take from them. And, and specifically with regard to the Adam Toledo incident, when I was asked about it, like if they were to charge the police officer, what would they charge him with? And the honest answer is I have no idea. And perhaps the only thing that could come out of that incident, as awful and tragic and horrible as it is, is some policy changes within the Chicago Police Department, maybe having to do with foot pursuit, maybe having to do with training and that, you know, he was he dropped a gun. And you want to give somebody in that situation the ability to comply with police officer orders and not get shot. But we flatten everything out to talk about it as if they're all the same. Is that just part because we can't we don't seem to be in a mood to tolerate nuanced conversation or is it just back to, we, we just have one lens of looking at all of these things and just can't get out of that myopia. You know, those, those stories are, are, are really, really sad and, and tragic. And, and when you watch the, the video footage, you know, you, you can see that police officers in, in half of a bit of a second have to make a massive decision. And so you can see some of the some of the challenges there, and you're you're exactly right. It, they they get flattened because the the narrative and and the basis from which analysis is done is ideology, not evidence. It's not data, and this is why I opened with talking about the rule of law. If you value the rule of law, then you don't arrive at conclusions unless the law has made it clear, right, based on the evidence and the data. What actually happened? Right? We have to we have we have to allow the rule of law to to, to in, in one sense do its job, or we lose the value of of the rule of law. And, and I think I think in, in these cases, because we're so quick to have the the ideological narrative confirmed that America is the most racist institution in, in the world in, in all of world history, right? That's the sort of prevailing narrative that this, this country. Is, is only dark and, and racist and ha, has made very little progress. What happens is 
whenever there is, is some sort of incident of, of an intraracial nature, people say, oh, there you go. There's the evidence, right? Exhibit number 447B.12. Right. Because it's intended to feed the narrative. It's not intended to arrive at the truth. And that's, I think, what we've lost in this conversation is arriving at the truth so that the truth can direct the, the reforms and, and so that the truth can actually uh, uh, help us arrive at, at what we need to do to make real, real progress. And it's complicated by, right, it's exacerbated, right, it's facilitated by, you know, social media, seeing only part of the clip, you know, rather than the whole incident. Right? We see 10 seconds in it, and it, it, actually, it actually feeds a narrative. And so I, I, wonder, I wonder what would happen if instead we decided to have the evidence lead and to wait until all of the evidence is, is in and say, you know what? The goal is to arrive at the truth. The goal is not to feed the narrative, right? The goal is, is, is not to have my tribe be verified and, and affirmed as right. And, and we've, we've lost, I think, I think the interest in, in the pursuit of truth. And we see it in situations like these. What you said there, the Adam Toledo incident specifically sticks out to me because it, it, even how deceptive what seems like the evidence can be is if you had watched news coverage here in Chicago and or if you'd been on Twitter, you see the still frame of Adam Toledo turning around, seeming to have his hands up, which is a, you know, a freeze frame of about a one second part of a video that is a much longer video and it's all out of context. And you could look at that part where he has his hands up and say, this is completely outrageous without even having the one second where he's turning around and without having the entire video where you see what led up to it. Um, I think that's an incredibly important point. You know, I, I was just going to say, you know, on that, on that particular story, cause I, I, I've you know, posted that freeze frame shot. I think, for me, you know, that that shot of that kid with his hands, you know, sort of approaching the sky, uh, uh, somewhat un uneven, just really spoke to the tragedy of the entire situation. Right. Just the sadness of, of this sort of uh, conflation of lots of terrible things. You have a you have a young teenager in the middle of the night with a weapon in his hand or running from the police. Stop. What? I mean, you know, we have to talk about that, right? Why, why is that happening, right? And then, and then, and then secondly, we just see the, the reality of what policing is like, right? You have, you have to make a decision. And, and you know, my, my, my guess is that, 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 that this officer won't be charged with anything ultimately, because of the juxtaposition of the action that he took and the, the, the context of this kid having a weapon in his hand, right? And same thing in, in Columbus, Ohio. It's just sad uh, that police have to be in the presence of children who have weapons in their, in their hands and police, and police have to make really, really, uh, really short, quick decisions. And what, what makes policing, I think, so, so heavy is that, is that when, when we make a mistake at work, right, you know, we have, we, you know, spell check might correct it or 
you know, there's a, a punctuation problem or we have to go down the hall and fix it. For police, when they make a mistake, people get hurt. Or in some cases, people may die. Right. And, and I think I think what we saw in that Toledo case is that that the convergence of, of all of those things uh, that really, really, really made it uh, really, really sad. Even even if you if you took if you took that frame and froze it and just sat and thought about the tragedy of it, you have to wait until all the evidence is in to act to sort of explain: Is it unreasonable that this situation ended up tragically the way the way it, it did? And you know, people asked me early on, like, "What do you think?" And I was like, "I I, I want to wait, right? I want to wait and see what that what that context is." I had a had a, a professor in seminary. He used to always say, context is your friend, right? Uh, context is your friend. And I think, I think pursuing the context is something that we need to be even more committed to in situations like this. I, I get the sense that uh, if that officer is not charged, as I, I agree with you, I, I think it's unlikely that he will be. But that if we did get some kind of reforms to the way that the Chicago Police Department operates, having to do with what they do and when they engage in foot pursuits, possible modifications of the way that they're trained um, so that you, as you would want, if an officer gives a command for someone fleeing to drop a weapon, they have a chance to comply with that. But then the officer is still not charged. I get the sense that all the focus would be on outrage over the officer not being charged and not as much on the reforms that, that had happened there. Do, do you think that's accurate? I mean, that, that's likely going to happen because, you know, you know, people aren't focused on letting the evidence and the data interpret context like that. And, and on, on, the, on the one hand, we, we want, you know, we, we, want to, we want some resolution, right? It's just so tragic. We want to, we, we want to flatten it out and, and make it make sense. And, and, and we, want to, we want to resolve all of those, all of the tensions that make us so uneasy about the pain that we experience when we, when we see things like that. And again, you know, we're just confronted with the reality of how of how messy these things uh, can actually can actually be. And you're right. You know, we need to think about maybe we need to change the, the ways in which policing happens with foot pursuits. A lot of, of police departments have changed the way that they they pursue, you know, stolen vehicles, for example. A lot of police departments just let the person seal it and just wait because of the accidents that happen. And so it's not worth it. And so maybe, maybe we have to discuss what constitutes a reasonable and a legitimate pursuit. The challenge is, you know, when their pursuit is with someone that has a weapon, that's different than the, than the pursuit of someone who stole some candy or stole uh, a, a cell phone. Uh, but if the person has a weapon, then that, that sort of changes the nature of, of the discussion. We, we may have to make some, some room for that. But I, I honestly think that police are the ones who should be having the discussions about reforming their own practice. I don't, I don't think it's my job um, as someone who's not an expert in policing to tell them you know, what, what, they, what they need to do. I think, I, think the, I think law enforcement as an institution, as a sphere, really has the expertise uh, to, to know what's best in terms of, you know, two things, right? Protecting the public 
But we also want these officers to go home at night or go home in the morning after their shift. I mean, these are men and women that have families and, and responsibilities and they're connected and things like that. And so we have to, right, we want to we wanna somehow mediate between protecting the public, but also not, not putting officers at, at unnecessary risk. Let's conclude here. You just discussed the importance of um, police departments and police officers and their knowledge and involvement in making reforms that would make their profession and what they do on a day-in, day-out basis better. Uh, For people who are observing the kinds of incidents that sparked our conversation last year and this year, the death of George Floyd, um, even incidents like Adam Toledo and and Makia Bryant, and who want to advocate for some kind of reforms that will make life in these communities better. Um, What sticks out to you as the most important reforms that they could and should be pushing for? That's a fantastic question. So, you know, the, 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 the average person doesn't have you know, much power or influence over, over some of the ways that laws are written in their state legislature, which tend to determine police practice, right? Police enforce the laws at the state level. And on the one hand, I think people need to be more informed with the laws that are being passed in their state. So many of us are, are fairly ignorant with, with some of the things that happen at the state level. We're so focused, over-focused on Washington, D.C., that we don't really think about the fact that most of the laws that we have, if you know, almost all of, of the laws that we have that we that impact us day to day, come to us from our state legislators. So, so pay attention to what's happening in the state. And if there are laws that are being proposed, if laws that are, are being offered really seem ridiculous, I think we have the, the sort of processes by which people can raise some objections with, the, with their representatives at the uh, state level. Uh, secondly, I would say, and even maybe more largely, while those structural reforms happen, we also need to be working really hard to put people in, in the sorts of positions where they're, where they're not going to likely have contact with police, period. And there are some things, right? We, we know the data is very clear. There are some things that tend to increase the likelihood that people have contact with police. For example, in, in low-income communities, uh, fatherlessness is correlated with juveniles having a, a, a high propensity of having contact with police. Not graduating high school, again, uh, increases the likelihood of people having contact with police. Uh, not having gainful employment, again, it increases the likelihood in low-income communities that people are going to have con- contact with the police. Drug and alcohol addiction. You know, those are the sorts of things that sort of increase the vulnerability, increase the, the, the likelihood that people in low-income communities are going to have contact with police. So I think I think if we really are serious about this as a as a as beyond the rhetoric, I mean, those are the issues that we have to work on. We need to put people in position where they're not going to sort of have an increased likelihood of having contact with police. So if, for example, if you're working in a community and you're in a tutoring program and you're focusing on, you know, some some kid named John and you're making sure John's grades are great, you're, you're helping John graduate high school, you're helping John either go to college or get a job, you're, you're, you're making a major dent 
and police data, because those are the sorts of things that John needs in order to not have contact with police. So I would say, on the one hand, yeah, we need to work on, on these structural reforms, but we also need to put kids in position. We need, we need to put uh, children and juveniles, and especially because it's mostly men, in positions where they're not going to have contact with police and working on marriage and fatherhood and education and jobs and, and things like that. Those are the sorts of issues that we don't realize actually undermine the need for police and will have a, a fantastic effect at reducing some of the, the sort of terrible situations that we've seen uh, in, in, in recent months. You know, if, if you have a 13-year-old kid who is in the middle of the night uh, with a weapon in his hand, involved in gang activity, uh, that's a different scenario than a 13-year-old kid who is in a home with a mom and a father uh, who just had dinner together discussing homework and, and, and making plans for the next day. I mean, that kid is not roaming the streets. That kid is not involved in gang activity. Uh, and that, that, that kid doesn't have a weapon in his hand running around at 2 o'clock in the morning. Dr. Anthony Bradley is professor of religious studies and director of the Center for the Study of Human Flourishing at the King's College, theologian in residence at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Lincoln Square, and serves as a research fellow at the Acton Institute. His most recent book, Why Black Lives Matter, was published in October 2020. Anthony Bradley, thank you so much for joining us today on Acton Line. Thanks for having me again. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja.